This is Thinking in Public, a program dedicated to intelligent conversation about frontline theological and cultural issues with the people who are shaping them. I'm Albert Moeller, your host and president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky. Over the last several years, American Christians have learned to talk in terms of worldview and world picture. Every single thinker has a world picture, a basic understanding of the way the world is. And every thinker, every brain also operates on the basis of a worldview, those basic assumptions that make the world plausible to us. But the problem for many American Christians is that our worldview actually is based upon, well, an insufficient understanding of the world. And that's where we need help in conversations with people such as my guest today, Walter Russell Mead. Walter Russell Mead is the James Clark Chase Professor of Foreign Affairs and Humanities at Bard College. He also serves as editor-at-large of the American Interest. For several years, he was a fellow of the Council of Foreign Relations, serving as the Henry A. Kissinger Senior Fellow for U.S. Foreign Policy from 2003 to 2010. Walter Russell Mead is one of America's leading intellectuals, not only in looking at the world in terms of foreign policy and geopolitics, but at the United States as well. Professor Mead, welcome to Thinking in Public. Oh, thanks for having me. I have followed your writings for, for quite a long time, and uh, when I think of, uh, of those who are interpreting the world for us, especially in the thought class, I kind of make a distinction, which I don't always actually want to make. It just seems hard not to make, between those who think that, that there is something uh, important uh, about, uh, well, belief in God, and those who do not, uh, just even in terms of the way one looks at the world. You seem to have a very keen belief that it does make a difference in terms of worldview. Well, it makes a difference to me and my worldview. I, you know, can't necessarily speak to other people about that, but, um, you know, for me, I find that um, that Christian doctrine, Christian ideas, and Christian faith help me to make sense of the world and to. Uh, you know, so that I find that kind of my my intellect and my faith are always engaged as I try to make sense of the news and and figure out where this world is headed. Yeah, I guess what I was trying to get at is that there are uh, there are a lot of people trying to look at the world and figure out what matters, and there are those who are trying to do it from a purely secular viewpoint, which appears to me to be increasingly difficult here in the uh, the twenty first century, given the fact that so many of the issues that we're debating or considering are actually inescapably theological, at least in part. Yeah, I think history really entered a new phase after 1945. Because, you know, that's the year when, when two things really happened. One is that with the liberation of the Nazi extermination camps, people had a vision of what you would have to call biblical evil right here in our own times and right in the middle of the... Of historically the most civilized and modern country in Europe. So you have absolute evil sort of flagrantly manifest. At the same time in 1945, you have, you have the nuclear attacks on Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And so what happens then is that there, there's a kind of, I, I think from then on we've been in, a, in an age that you'd have to call apocalyptic, not that I'm making any predictions about what's happening tomorrow, next month, or the next 50 years, but in a sense where questions of the ultimate meaning of life and the ultimate direction of history aren't abstractions 
and they aren't debated sort of mythologically. But the presence of concepts like the end of the world, the destruction of mankind, the struggle against absolute evil, which might ultimately bring about an end to civilization or to life, uh, those are now realities. Whereas for people 100, 200, 300 years ago, those were sort of mythological concepts or very abstract. And so politics now increasingly deals with the absolute. How does the intellectual class in the United States deal with that? Uh, I think those historical markers are very, very important. But, but did that change the way American intellectuals, for instance, uh, conceive foreign policy? Well, what I think it's done, I mean, in general, American thought, I would argue, is, is structurally, though not necessarily religiously, Calvinist. That is, uh, Calvin's idea of history as the working out of, you know, of a predestined plan down to every last detail and, and sort of a force that is not human will drives everything in history. Uh, modern intellectuals in the United States have kept that Calvinistic concept of determination, but they've dropped the idea of God. Um, and so we have this kind of, there's this enormous need to find laws of history which are driving it to a predetermined conclusion and what that the form that that characteristically takes in america is this idea that historical progress leads to moral progress to democratic progress so we have all of these ideas about how development leads to democracy democracy leads to peace and so the world is inexorably traveling down this road. Now that becomes, you know, there, there are certainly serious intellectual arguments you can make for that. Um, but in the, in the absence of any supernatural faith or grounding in, in some kind of hope, that it, it becomes almost psychologically necessary, I think, to hold on to that kind of belief. So a kind of an, an irrational, unacknowledged faith enters into the intellectual discourse, I think. And it's part of the reason that, that so many people become so incredibly angry when, um, when progressive ideas or, or Whig history ideas are challenged in some way. Uh, because you're not just challenging an intellectual idea or even a political program. You're really challenging the anchor that allows someone to hope in a very frightening time. I was fascinated by an expression that uh, that you deployed in one of your recent essays when you described American intellectuals as Puritans without God. I, I think that that says something about the lingering influence of the Christian worldview, even among those who certainly are not uh, are not professing Christians of any sort. So that's the kind of category you just don't see often acknowledged, I think, uh, in the American intellectual class. Well, again, I, I think some of this is about secularism, you know, sort of the absence of religious faith. Um, as Peter Berger says uh, the, the most religious country in the world is, is India. The least religious country in the world is Sweden. America is a country of, of Indians governed by Swedes. You know, in, this, in, in the difference between the sort of elite class and the rest of society on religion, but I think there there are other factors too, which is that, for example, 
historically, America was an overwhelmingly Protestant country. But with the mass immigration from Europe in the late 19th century, you get a very, very large Catholic minority and a significant Jewish group. And part of what was done, I think, was in order to have a national conversation that is something uh, about politics, uh, you, you have to somehow separate the traditional Protestant categories of thought and analysis and find a secular common ground where Catholics and Jews and, Christ, and Protestant Christians can all talk. It was a very natural step for America because if you think about the earliest days of the, of, of the, of the country, you had Congregationalist New England and Anglican South, a uh, backcountry that was sort of Methodist and uh, beginning to be Baptist in those days, and you had the um, the Quakers in the middle, and so you had so you had state politics that were often very much rooted in the vocabulary and the ideas of a of a specific religious movement, and then you had to develop a national conversation that was different from that home state conversation. Yeah, it's very interesting you mentioned Peter Berger. I had a fascinating conversation with him in the uh, the first year of this program. And uh, one of the things we talked about is is how the theory of secularization did and didn't work, how, how it did and did not play out in history. And as he said, you know, the grand theory of secularization actually didn't go as had been predicted. Modernity, it turns out, does not mean uh, pure secularity. Uh, he, he pointed out what it did end up meaning, uh, just in terms of pluralization. But I'll never forget, he said, yep. he said that there are two places the secularization theory actually did work, and it followed almost precisely the plan that the early sociological theorists had predicted. And he said those two places are Western Europe and the American University campus. And he, <laughs> said, he said those two places, yeah. it actually worked pretty much according to plan. Well, I think that's by and large right. Uh, although I must say that, that um, students and, and actually younger faculty today, it seems to me, are more interested in religion sometimes than the older generation. Yeah. Yeah, that's clear, even in uh, many of the Ivy League campuses. You wrote an article entitled, French Secularism Dies in the Middle East. Uh, by, by the way, uh, I don't know if there's any borrowing uh, uh, here uh, on the part of uh, Bernard Lewis, but I just picked up his new book entitled, uh, The Death of, of History uh, in the Middle East. And... Uh, mm-hmm. You know, what we have here is uh, in the Arab Spring and in all the things going on here, and especially in the Islamic revolutions and, and, and Islamicization across uh, so much of that part of the world, well, here's another refutation of, of secularism. And, and you very interestingly detailed four different models of secularism that have developed over the last three centuries. You identified them as the British, the German, the American, and the French models. I haven't seen anyone do it like that, but I, I thought it was a, a brilliant way of setting it out. Can you just kind of lay that out for us? Sure. Uh, well, the the British model of, of secularism is uh, is not really very secular. By law, the Queen of England, the head of state, has to be a member of the Anglican Church and is the head of the Anglican Church. And the Anglican Church is supported by taxpayer funds. Uh, and Parliament is really the ultimate responsible body in the Anglican Church. So, so you have a church establishment that Henry VIII might have recognized. But what Henry VIII doesn't, wouldn't have recognized or wouldn't have accepted is that if you're not a member of the Anglican Church, there are no civil disabilities other than, I suppose, you can't marry a prince if you're a Catholic. Um, and so the, 
you know, so, so everyone has freedom to express their own religion and so on and so on, but there's a special place for the Anglicans. In Germany, it's, it's a little different. There what happens is that if you register uh, as a member of one of the leading Protestant churches or the Catholic church, the government takes a little bit of your salary, withholds it from your pay, and passes it on to the church that you're a member of. So that in that sense, the, the German churches receive revenue from the government in proportion to their membership in society. And by the way, it makes German churches quite wealthy. And they have German churches have a good deal of influence around the world and actually do a lot of good because of it. Then you have the American system where the government just doesn't play a specific role in religion. Generally speaking, the fact that, that religious contributions are tax-deductible means that there's a kind of an implicit support for religion, but not for any particular religion. There's no religious test. You, you don't have to have a particular religion to be president as long as you can get people to vote for you. Uh, and But the government does have the belief, I think, in our country that not everybody does, but in general, the government kind of thinks that religion is on the whole a good thing. And the government is comfortable with the idea that there are lots of churches, lots of synagogues, lots of temples, mosques, and and thinks that a religious population is likely to be a more civically minded and, and virtuous population. The French idea was very different, because when you have the French Revolution, the Catholic Church was overwhelmingly the largest church in France, and it was tied and joined at the hip with the monarchy. And the French bishops and abbots were nobles who owned large feudal properties on behalf of the church. The church had serfs. Plus, the French church was linked to the European church, linked to the pope, and everywhere through Europe, the church was linked to ruling families. So in the struggle between the revolution and its political enemies, the church ended up being among its political enemies. And so the um, the Jacobins, the, the, the Re French revolutionaries, felt that they had to crush the church to save the revolution. Yeah, you have and a line in this article, if I interrupt you, you really explain that. You say, hand-in-hand hand with this vision— that is the vision of the Jacobins, is the belief that religion is a backward-looking, anti-enlightenment, anti-modernizing force. The Republic must curb the Church in order to fulfill the task of economically and politically modernizing the country. I, I cite that because I think it's not only some of, some French, you know, clearly, in terms of a French style of secularism of which that's characteristic, but there's a certain form of secularist thought in the United States that pretty much holds to the same understanding. That's right. Well, that French revolutionary view... Is a, has been about as influential around the world as another French revolutionary creation, the metric system. Uh, that is, almost everywhere in the world, um, in, in the sort of developed world and much of the developing world, that French vision makes sense. You go to Mexico, you go to Brazil, you go to Italy, you go all kinds of places, and you, you go to Turkey, you go to most of the Arab world, that's what people mean when they talk about secularism. And yet you so, say that it's dying in the sands of the Middle East. That's correct, because uh, there, you know, there were two types of secular, French secularists in the, in the Middle East. One was Ataturk and the Kamalists in Turkey, who 
tried to keep religion at, at bay while they modernized and westernized Turkey, and they more or less succeeded. But in the rest of the Arab world, you had people like Nasser, and you had Saddam Hussein, you had the, the elder Assad in Syria, you had Jinnah in Pakistan. They wanted to modernize like that, and they all failed. So in Turkey, you're, what you're having is a quiet, peaceful revolution against Kemalism as Turkey has become more prosperous and democratic and so on. The, the more pious people in Turkey say, hey, we vote, we should be able to vote too. We should, have, we should be able to express our ideas. So in that sense, Turkey is, is, they would argue, Turkey is growing out of the secularism. But in a lot of the Arab world, the secularists said, we're going to crush religion in order to modernize and build powerful countries. Hey, religion, religion was set to one side. The countries have tried but failed to modernize. People are poor. They keep losing wars to Israel. They keep being interfered with by other parts of the world. So in the Arab world, secularism on that French model seems to be a total failure, and people are now looking for other alternatives. Careful thinking requires attention to the categories and the vocabulary. We need to take big issues and break them down into manageable units of thought. That's where the analysis offered by someone like Walter Russell Mead becomes invaluable to us. He looks at the picture and says secularism isn't one thing. There are actually different variants. You break those variants down, they have historical roots, but they also have political, geopolitical, ideological, and economic and political consequences. That's why when you say something is this, well, it might be that, but a careful look may reveal that there are other ways of looking at that as well. The great fact or phenomenon of the last couple of centuries has often been reduced to one word, and that is modernization. With modernization have come certain assumptions. One of those assumptions is that democracy reaches a point of stability such that two democracies will not go to war against each other. Some have called this the McDonald's peace theory. Walter Russell Mead says it may be good in theory, but it actually doesn't work in practice. Professor Mead, when you look at the world right now, uh, just look at that very issue, you know, the, the idea that modernization would produce democracy and democracy would produce peace. What, what went wrong with that theory? Well, I think there are a lot of problems with it. Maybe the, the biggest one is that the other thing that modernization produces is nationalism. Now, if you look at, if you look at the world 150 years ago, uh, if you went, if you crossed the Rhine River going east in Europe, and then you looked at Europe and the Middle East from there, almost all of it was run by four great multinational empires. The Ottoman Empire ruled almost the entire Middle East, the uh, Austro-Hungarian Empire ruled the Balkans and a lot of south, southern and central Europe. The, the German Empire, which included a lot of modern Poland. And you had the Russian Empire, which included pretty much what the Soviet Union had. These were multinational, multi-ethnic, multi-religious states. Since then, those four empires have broken up into something like 50 or 60 countries based on nationality, people speaking the same language, people having the same religion, hundreds of millions of deaths and, 
and refugees were created, or maybe 150 million people, I think, killed or made refugees during this process of transformation. Now that, you know, democracy and nationalism were and remain today linked causes. So it looks to me as if modernization is the father has has two children and that war is a natural product of modernization. As I look at play, you know, you can see it's still happening in parts of the Middle East today, the Kurdish question. The the Israel-Palestine issue is one of the last of these old conflicts, but you'll find uh, if you look in, in a lot of Africa, you can see where as some, many of these countries modernize, the tribal conflicts are likely to become deeper. It has a lot to do, by the way, with when you have a modern society, you need a much stronger and more intrusive state. Uh, people could tolerate the sort of weak state the Ottoman Empire was in 1800. And the Sultan, in theory, he was absolute, but he lived a long way away, and you could always bribe the local officials and, you know, sort of... The, there was an informal way to make things work. But as the, as the state becomes stronger, taxes more, spends more, hires more people, um, you want a state that reflects your own individual, personal values, speaks your language. You want it to give your kid a job and not, not those Armenians next door. Hmm. Um, so I'm afraid that, that modernization is actually you know, a bloody, bloody, bloody historical process. It's not, uh, you know, nothing like this sort of peaceful, pleasant apotheosis of human progress that people like to imagine it as. And, and in one sense, it's, it's almost hard to believe that that confidence in inevitable human progress is, still has such tenacious holding power. You go back to the beginnings of the 20th century, and there in Germany you had a, a, a theologian such as Karl Barth, uh, repudiating uh, the Protestant liberalism out of which they had come because of its easy uh, alliance with the nationalistic aims of, uh, of the Kaiser. And, and then you have, of course, as you mentioned earlier in our conversation, the devastating uh, realities of, of both uh, the Hitlerian genocide and the Holocaust and uh, the reality of, of, of human power and technology uh, at the scale of megadeth, pointing to uh, to not only Auschwitz but uh, to uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, right. and and on the other hand, if you speak mm-hmm. English and live in in places like America and Australia, you know life has actually been getting better for the last three hundred years. Yeah. So you know what? The, there's the kind of there's a tension between a kind of a you know your your micro view tells you that things are getting better. I mean, I get better computers every couple of years. Sure. And all kinds of nice things are happening. And then there's the kind of mega picture of, you know, this tension that's out there in the world and so on. But that's so where it gets really unstable. Yeah. But, but optimism has really strong roots in Protestant theology. I mean, as, as you know, sort of um, a post-millennial uh, dis, uh, vision of the, of the apocalypse eschatology was was the dominant American tradition until well into the 20th century. And found now only, though, among fringe groups, uh, because it... it, it history well, and the, main, and the yeah. mainline churches. Yeah. But when you look, for instance, at uh, the, the 10th anniversary of 9-11, something seared into the American conscience, 
you know, there still is a debate a decade later as to the nature of the world in which we live. Uh, American intellectuals are not unified in uh, in understanding the very nature of the world we live. And then comes, uh, even in the European context, something as horrific as what took place in Norway. And uh, I thought when you looked at that uh, and, and, and wrote about it, you had some, some amazing insights and in looking at that and saying, you know, Norway itself it isn't as modern as it might think it is. You talked about the resurgence of ancient hatreds as came out in, in, in that murderous rampage. Well, you know, I, you know can I say the, the human heart seems to not change very much uh, from generation to generation. So, you know, and, we, and Christians we, have a good vocabulary and understanding and reason for that. Well, you, you know, that's it. And it's also uh, living with the kind of radical uncertainty where, you know, you look around you and you can see grounds for hope that the world is getting better. And you also have a sense that as a, as a good person, you want to side with the movement of ending human rights abuses, of making life better for the poor, all of those kinds of things. And at the same time, you can see terrible threats. Maybe there'll be ecological devastation, maybe nuclear war, maybe terrorism, all kinds of of horrible things out there, and somehow be able to keep your head in the midst of that, keep your your balance on the tightrope. It's much easier to do that if you have a, a grounding in some kind of spiritual understanding that in which all of these different things make sense and which you believe that there is a benign providence behind it all, even if that providence is sometimes rather inscrutable. If you had the opportunity to speak, as you are now, to uh, to American evangelicals who are asking some of the biggest questions about global responsibility, about uh, about the state of the world, what would you say that American evangelicals could and, and should contribute to this discussion? And what should we be reading and what should we be learning? Well, in one sense, what, what you should be doing, what, what anyone should be doing, is, is just getting a good general education in world history, world philosophy, uh, know the United States, know the world, study economics. I mean, evangelicals do have a long history of, um, you know, the, the missionary movement in the U.S., was a very optimistic movement, you know, and most of the most of the 19th century missionaries who were out there really saw the process of spreading the gospel internationally as part of this process of gradual amelioration, you know, that the light of Christianity, of Christ, would spread through the world and gradually things would just get better. There's still a sense in which I think evangelicals often do a lot of the things that that, in, that, that religious people from many traditions do when they get in. They sort of think there's a magic religion elixir, and that their job as religious people is to, is to put a couple of drops of, of, of religion into the mix and calm things down. Religious pe- How many times have I heard religious people say, you know, we're the peacemakers, and our ability to dialogue and our understanding is really going to help things. Uh, you know, that... That's not really, as I look at some of these conflicts and talk to people caught up in them, um, the Serbs and the Bosnians weren't fighting because they didn't have enough humane facilitators who could listen to both sides. Uh, Their conflicts were deeper and more tragic. So I think religious people need to be the most sophisticated people in the room when it comes to politics 
economics the brute facts of history. No, that makes and sense. That in, that, in that sense, people who have a, a commitment to making the world better or ministry in the world because of religious faith, part of it is instead of running around the world with a religious faith and telling everybody how great it is, which is another gift and another ministry, now for, for people who are interested in, in dealing with the problems of the world, that faith should make you a better student, a more open-minded scholar and observer. You put in the extra two hours a day of study and reflection that over 10 or 20 years make the difference in how effective you're able to be. Every genuine conversation is at least in part something you can anticipate but it includes aspects that you cannot foresee. The conversation with Walter Russell Mead is one of those conversations that reminds us that perhaps where we need to end in many of these conversations is with our own intellectual responsibility. How is it that we should order our minds and discipline our thinking so that we see things aright? As American evangelicals, as Christians, one of our main responsibilities in terms of the life of the mind is to learn not only what to think, but how to think. And one of the realities that becomes glaringly apparent to us in this particular historical epoch is the fact that if we are going to be careful, thoughtful, faithful thinkers, we're going to have to think a great deal about the world. That means we're going to have to know a great deal, learn a great deal, and we're going to have to invest a lot of intellectual energy into understanding what is going on in the world. But not only the current picture of world affairs, but the historical movements and events that brought these things about, the worldview shifts and the worldview transformations that have led to the current intellectual climate, the reality of the intersections between economics and politics. But we're always going to be looking at the theological issues as well. Walter Russell Mead, at the very beginning of this conversation, said that the reality of evil has been one of the most important issues of the past century or so of modern Western thought, coming to terms with the Holocaust in Germany, coming to terms with the power of human beings to create mega-weapons that create mega-death. These are things that have had to shift the intellectual climate here in the United States. But looking at the world picture, one of the things that I have learned from Walter Russell Mead is to look at what is going on in terms of, well, even the headlines of the day and understand what's behind them. Looking at the tragedy in Norway, the murderous rampage that took place there, Professor Mead takes us back to the question of modernization and whether it actually delivered what Western intellectuals were sure it would deliver. He says this, however, Modernization is not just more golden arches and more bloggers. It is also about accelerating social change. Capitalism drives technological change, and technological change feeds on itself. The more of it we have, the more we get. Think of the way that advances in computer technology feed the speed of scientific advance as slide rules yield to PCs and as graduate students in third-rate universities now have access to computing power and information that university professors at MIT couldn't get 30 years ago. Technological change, generally speaking, drives increased affluence. As humanity masters the natural environment, we get more and more stuff with less and less work. So far, so good. This is what McDonald's peace theory predicts. But here's a catch. That technological change also drives social change. Factories move to China. Immigrants move to Norway, bringing strange ideas. The social welfare states of Western Europe creak under the strain. This accelerating, unpredictable, and destabilizing change can cause individuals and social groups to become unhinged, to lose their way in the confusion and mystery of modern life. 
Blue-collar factory workers lose their jobs by the millions. Some adapt, some endure, a few go postal. The upper middle class feels the earth shake beneath its feet as old certainties are challenged and old ways of making a living cease to work, end quote. Now, what I find fascinating in all of that is that even as he was directing this analysis to Americans trying to understand Norway, this kind of insight actually helps American evangelicals to understand America. The modernization that is here being traced in terms of Norway's experience is something that has similar effects here. And if we talk about the accelerating, unpredictable, and destabilizing changes all around us, this is not only a challenge for the world at large, this is a challenge for American evangelicals. This is affecting our world as well and our intellectual responsibility. I really appreciate the way Walter Russell Mead ended the discussion. I asked him about our responsibility, and without flinching, he spoke to it. He said that we need to know more about the world. We need to have a good historical understanding of the world. We need to invest, as he said, those hours of study to understand the world around us. It's not enough simply to talk about the world. It's not enough to point to the world and say, that's our responsibility in some kind of theoretical frame. We have to look at the world as it is and seek to understand it in order that we may be faithful Christians, having not only the responsibility to understand the world, but after all, a commission to reach that world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. I think it's very important that here we have a foreign policy expert, one of the leading foreign policy intellectuals in the United States of America, say to evangelicals, you need to know more in order to be more faithful. That's an important thing for us to hear. It's an even more important truth for us to take to heart. Many thanks to my guest, Dr. Walter Russell Mead, for thinking with me today. You can hear our program on the World Wide Web at albertmuller.com, through iTunes, or also now through Stitcher Smart Radio. Stitcher allows you to listen to Thinking in Public directly from your iPhone, Android phone, BlackBerry, or Palm phone. Download it today for free at stitcher.com or at the App Store. Before signing off, I want to invite you to join us for an exciting conference taking place on the campus of Southern Seminary on November 4 through 5. ReInvent is a youth and family ministry conference that will equip you to become more effective in leading transformational youth and family ministries in the local church. For more information, visit sbts.edu. Thanks for joining me for Thinking in Public. Until next time, keep thinking. I'm Albert Moeller.